This morning we're in Matthew 5 and we are looking at verses 33 through 37 and I want you to just listen as I read this small portion from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, if you're paying attention uh, this week uh, in our country... Um, One president has taken the place of another. It's a dramatic shift in one sense, and in another sense, it's just life is going on as it continues to transition and change all around us all the time. This is just one more transition. When you're thinking about having a new president or any new leader for that matter, one question typically comes to mind the deepest question that we should be asking about anyone who's in a position of power, especially the president of the United States, is not whether or not they can get more done or get more done for us or our agendas through pragmatic skill. Maybe you're thinking that the deepest issue of curing the virus or solving the economy or building the wall or not tearing it down or racism or a divided country, that these are the issues to be solved. Well, the deepest question that we have for any leader, especially on that scale, is this one. Do they have integrity? Integrity is always where leadership rises or falls, whether you are the same on the inside as the outside, whether you are a whole person or not. Put practically, are you a promise maker in terms of someone who really means it? Are you someone who tells the truth or will tell the truth or are you just faking it? This is always the issue. I have a borrowed title from a book called The Power of Integrity. There is power in integrity. Um, Our former president decried many, many things, we know. But one thing we heard him repeatedly say in, in any platform, in any context, is that the mainstream news media was called what? Fake news. He just said that over and over again. It was that the news media does not have integrity. He was always calling that into question. It's what one person calls the art of lying or lying in news or lying even in politics. We want to stand as distinct in a world that doesn't tell the truth. We want to be those who are the culture of truth, right? The church should be the culture of people who speak the truth in love. We stand for truth. We love the Bible, which is true. We know it's true. Jesus calls himself the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of what? Truth, aletheon, truth, telling the truth. And not just telling the truth on a moral scale, but being the same on the inside as the outside, being 
integral or, or, or like an integer. It's the idea of being a whole unit, not a fraction, but a whole in terms of what we say and what we commit to and what we are believing that we will do. This is what causes us to stand out. There was a Kansas um, Senate uh, that met a couple years ago and the chaplain offered this prayer at the beginning. It said, omniscient father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we would like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. Suffice it to say, this attribute is a lost attribute. And when people lose their integrity, it's a single factor that causes us to lose respect for that individual. Think of the men and women of the Bible who had the record of integrity. Examples like, uh, well, Abel even, Enoch, Joseph, Daniel. Think of Paul, Ruth, Esther, Abigail, Mary, Phoebe, Lois, Eunice. Some mentioned more than others with you know greater detail, but you have records in the Bible that have no mark on them, even though they were not perfect. But then you have others who we highly respect, and they're respected and mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith, but they have some failure that besmirched the record. Noah, Job, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Sarah, Rebecca, Martha, Yodia, Sintichi. Names mentioned that we love and we honor, but there's some blight there that undermines influence. See, leadership is influence. Leadership is the ability to take a person or an operation or a group from one stage to another. You're a facilitator, and when your trust is broken, it undermines your ability to act and function and lead well. In the spiritual realm, in 1 Timothy 3, elders and pastors are called to be above reproach. They're not called to be perfect, only Jesus is perfect, but they're called to have a direction of life that is measurably holy and has integrity. There's no mess that's been left undone. There's nothing that can be brought back to a person that undermines his influence within the church. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our example. He's the only one who was ever perfect. One person put it, it's not the perfection of your life, it's the direction of your life that qualifies you as a leader. A good leader is someone who makes a bad decision and then turns around and does what? Makes it right, makes a good decision. Doesn't leave something um, left undone. There's scandals in the church that checker spiritual leaders. There are, you know, things that follow people. There was a leader that I highly respect that I've heard preach um, on numerous occasions who came out about a year ago and he had broken his marriage covenant. He had committed adultery two times at least. And then I just Googled him this week just to check on what he was doing. And it says he's back in the circuit, back preaching again. Obviously, he didn't really take his repentance very seriously. Four years ago, when our former president was being, you know, right on the cusp of being voted for. It came out, you know, that he had that recorded conversation that is, you know, too rough and too dark to mention the language of what he said and what he meant by what he said. But he had to publicly apologize on a, 
national and world stage for what he had said, and he had to own that. But he dumbed down his confession by just calling it locker room talk. These kinds of scandals that are regular within the office of leaders, it dumbs down the standard of what we should expect from leaders, especially as Christians. As Christians, we have the power source in Christ to actually have integrity. And we're not going to be perfect, but we can stand for Christ and stand distinct in a world that just looks the other way. That just says, you know, I want what that person can give me so much that I'm not going to hold that person genuinely accountable. There are pastors who fall to financial and moral um, decisions that they make, anger, bullying, addictions, not managing their home life. Their children are a wreck. Recently, several pastors, those whom I respect, authors I've read, they've been marked as being unentreatable, unable to listen. And that's usually the issue. It's not that we hold people to a standard of just absolute abject perfection. It's just as a leader, you have to listen. You have to be open when people give you counsel, when people see things in your life. It's not the snapshot. It's the movie that's the problem. It's not the incident. It's the pattern that's the problem in a person's integrity and in their life. And usually it's a very slippery slope. It's not a dramatic fall at first. It's just sliding away, being deaf, not listening. And the descent is slow and secret, like you're going down on the rungs of a ladder until finally you come to the last rung and you step off and you step into the light and you're exposed. One person put it in this way, in this regard, that when a leader falls, it's not a fall far. It's not a far fall, I should say. It's the idea that they didn't fall just dramatically in one decision. They were falling for a long time, and then it was a dramatic sort of coming out of what was wrong. The society's compromise, um, society seeing this level of compromise on a societal level and in the church has undermined the, the commitment of marriage. I looked up uh, the idea of millennials this week and what they're doing with prenuptial agreements. They're still creating prenuptial agreements. A lot of millennials are, are um, doing what I call um, creating pre-divorce contracts because they don't think it's really going to work out after all. So they have to put a contract together where the assets will go if something melts down. It's the idea that they just think it's going to rupture as a foregone conclusion. And so people who used to get married in their 20s are now getting married in their 30s and now, get, now waiting till they're 40 to get married. And there's no sin measuring in terms of when you get married according to the providence of God or, or what station of life you're in or if you're single. And I understand all of that. But the, the mindset of not trusting God and not trusting someone as you're covenanting together is what's undermined because of a lack of integrity in our world. People are not trusting God as the source of their integrity. As the source, watch this, as the source of the integrity of the person you're going to marry. You trust God for your spouse, right? That's where integrity is built, not on perfectionism, not on hard coaching, hard life coaching to be a getter or and a follow through person. No, it's what the spirit of God does. And that's Jesus' point in this text. This oath, this oath that you make is not a superficial oath. When you make an oath before God, 
You're making a real commitment that he alone can hold you accountable for that gives you true integrity. And so if you're taking notes, how do you tap into this source of integrity? The power of integrity comes from taking two measures. First of all, practically, number one, you strip away your false securities. Strip away false securities. Integrity is not built on externalism. Again, um, the Pharisees and the rabbis were trying to use God's law as religious cover to say, just do these things. Just follow this, this, this pattern of obedience and you'll be fine. And Jesus is going, no, you have to follow from the heart. You've got to dig deeper if you want there to be truth in your life. So the Pharisees, like links in a chain, are using the Bible for this. And they're saying, look, if you just follow, you shall not kill then then you're fine. But Jesus says, no, that's a cover for your anger. Oh, I'm not killing anybody, but I can blow up in the house. Uh, you're using, uh, you shall not commit adultery as cover for lust and coveting. Jesus is saying, look, it's lustful intent that we're talking about, not just the act of have you done it yet or not. That's what Jesus is exposing. Am I, spe- am I speaking truth to you here? I mean, this is very, very practical. This is very real. Yeah, you may divorce. Here's another one. We looked at that last week. You can divorce. It's simple. One, two, three steps. Just follow the plan. Deuteronomy 24 has got it all wrapped up for you. The certificate thing. Just follow that. No problem. If you find something in their life and that spouse's life and you want to change partners, no big. Jesus is going, no, divorce is always hard. It's always hard. And there's an exception um, clause for divorce, an allowance that's grace that's given in a very, very difficult, hard situation. These things all tie together. They're all linked in in Jesus's sermon where he's talking about lustful intent, which goes into easy divorce. And with the whole topic of marriage, it, it lines perfectly into the issue of oaths, making a promise, making an oath or a commitment. Marriage is a great example of that, but it's any oath, any commitment that we're making here Before the Lord, the rabbis were masking a lack of spiritual integrity with religion. And if you're not careful, you'll do the exact same thing. You'll use religion. You'll use, let's make it real practical. You use God speak to cover your lack of integrity. And it's very easy to lack integrity, to not follow through, to say you're going to do something and not do it. Verse 33 is a... um, it's really a conflagration. It's, it's, it's gathering together um, verses and phrases from the Old Testament. That's what the rabbis were doing. And so again, it says again, you, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So it's that the rabbis were saying this. And the phrase is, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's what the rabbis were saying. Well, the scripture condemns taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what it means to swear falsely. It's not just using the word God in anger. That's sin to do, like where people do that and throw his name around. But really it's making a commitment in the name of God that you really don't mean to follow through on at all. You know, as God is my witness, I'm gonna do this and you don't mean it at all. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Leviticus chapter 19, 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. 
So it's not making the vow that was wrong. It's that you don't mean to make it in the first place. It's the hypocrisy behind a false vow. That's what he's pointing out. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. You'll be guilty of sin. Verse 22, if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to what's past, um, what has passed your lips, what you say. Be careful behind what you promise which you've promised with your mouth. And then verse 24, he gives an example of someone who would go into his neighbor's vineyard and eat grapes. He says, you can eat your fill of grapes. Obviously, that person would have had permission to do that. And it says, as, you, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. What does that mean? If you've committed, if you have a, a, a commitment with that owner that you can have some grapes, just don't take more grapes than... You negotiated in the first place. Don't hide some in your bag and sneak away with grapes that weren't yours in the first place. That's stealing. And people shuck and jive in business all the time. And they say, you know, well, we've contracted for this, but I'm going to take a little bit more. I'm going to, I'm going to work the system. And in Deuteronomy, the Lord is saying, look, that's, that's messing up your vow. That's, that's a breach of your integrity. Well, what is Jesus doing here in verse 34? He says, the rabbi said this, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And that's, that's true. That's true. But what Jesus is confronting is not the truth of that statement. He's confronting the idea that you can use a statement like that as religious cover to not really follow through at all because you've not addressed the heart. Do you see that? You have to address the heart of integrity, not just be someone who's a getter dunner. The rabbis would say, look, the way you solve, the way you solve not swearing falsely is you just do it. You just follow through and you just, just force it through. And Jesus is saying, no, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. What does he mean there? What does he mean? Is Jesus forbidding taking an oath or making a promise? Well, I think God's word says that we are to make promises and that that's not presumptuous. Someone who would take this very literally would say, look, it's not okay to swear in court. Put your you know, right hand on the Bible and, and, or raise your right hand, left hand on the Bible and say, you know, I will. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making a commitment of integrity here. Um, in the inauguration, they do that still. You know, I'm glad they still use the Bible in that case. Um, but Anabaptists or the Moravians or the Quakers or denominations that say, no, you can't do that. George Fox, the, the founder of the Quakers, was put in prison for refusing to do that. He said, you have given me a book here to kiss and swear on. And this book, which we, um, ye have given me to kiss, says, kiss the son. And the son says in the book, swear not at all. So he took it very literally. He said, I say, as the book says, and yet ye imprison me, yet chance you do not imprison the book for saying so. So he was saying, look, you know, put me in jail for this. But I think he was taking it too literally. Um, God is looking, Jesus is looking for not functional obedience, but spiritual obedience. The point is integrity. Jesus isn't forbidding taking an oath. He actually is commanding instead that you have integrity when you take an oath. I'm going to argue for that. We have integrity when we make promises. God himself has made oaths. He's made commitments to us as our example. 
Um, in this, Genesis 9, 11, he made a covenant or a promise never to flood the earth again. Genesis 9, 11, Luke 1, 67 through 76 was Zechariah when, when he, was, he was blessing the new child that was given to him in birth. It was uh, John the Baptist had come. He said, bless the Lord, the God of Israel, who's visited us and redeemed his people He's raised up the horn of salvation through the mouth of the prophets. He's, he will save his enemies because he remembered his covenant. In verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us deliverance from our enemies. It's a child who will be called the prophet of the Most High who will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. What is, what is meant here is that Zechariah is saying the whole of salvation is based on an oath. It reaches all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant where God swore by himself that he would save people and he's given us a savior. It begins with John the Baptist being able to announce his coming, his arrival. Hebrews 6 is the same thing. It says, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So there's not a condemnation of making oaths or promises in general in the Bible. So, so when we desire, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, with an oath, because it's impossible for God to lie. Our salvation is based on God being the promise keeper and an oath that was made for us. We're saved because of this oath. And in like manner, when you express faith in Christ and say, Christ, all I have is you, like we just sang, that's an oath. We're promising ourselves to God. Paul made declarations like these when he said he was uh, preaching and, and praying for the flock in Rome. He said in Romans 1.9, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Romans 9, 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians 2, 5, didn't come with flattering speech. God is witness, my witness. Listen, we have all kinds of accountability groups, right? We have person-to-person accountability. We want to set up groups to hold us accountable and, and you know, be together. And those can be good things. And the Bible tells us to confess our sins one to another, and that's good. But guess what? If you really want to deal with the soul of your integrity, you have to go before God and say, God, you are the witness to my soul. You really know what's going on inside of me. We can put up a good face and talk a good game to anyone, right? Not to God. God is the ultimate lie detector. He knows your heart. And when you can come to a place where you're living before the face of God with your life and your sins and your issues, that's when you're growing. It's important to confess to each other. It's important to have people in your life to help you. But ultimately, God's accountability is the the truest accountability. And that's what Jesus is tapping into here. He's saying that the rabbis were calling for a more of a getter dunner attitude. And he's exposing this false corrective that people were using as cover for making promises. In verse 34, he does this. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not take an oath by your head. Stop there. What Jesus is doing here is he's exposing the different ways that people were taking oaths in that culture as religious cover. They were saying, okay, the rabbi said, don't fare falsely, follow through, got it. So I'm going to make an oath by heaven. And that's like the picture of a satellite space station out there. You know, from that view, I'm making my oath. That's how big my commitment is. You know, you think you can make a bigger commitment than that. I'm swearing by heaven. Then that's, you know, not good enough. Then we'll just bring it satellite down to the earth. Maybe heaven doesn't impress you. So I'll I'll do it in terms of the whole earth, all this world that God has created. I'll, I'll put it on the line and I'll swear by that. Okay. You're not, not buying that. Not really impressed with that. You know, a lot of people swear by a lot of things. Little kids will swear, you know, by their mother's health. I've heard that, you know, swear by their mother's grave or things, you know, people swear by a lot of things. Okay, well, let's make it more religious. Let's go over to Jerusalem. I'm going to swear by Jerusalem. I'm not trying to run away from God's accountability. I'm going to run into the city of God and say, I swear by that. That's, that's what I'm basing my follow through on. Not good enough. Well, I'll swear by my own head. I'll swear by my own life, whether I live or die or my own health, that I will follow through. These are superficial ways to make covenant promises and their religious cover that Jesus is exposing. Well, you say, are we supposed to make oaths at all? Why don't we just avoid that altogether? Well, remember Hannah in 1 Samuel 1.11, she vowed a vow. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give me your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And she did that. That happened. But then there was the covenant vow of Jephthah that was an evil covenant. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me the Ammonites, let them fall to my armies. Um, Judges 11, 30 and 31. Then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. I'll offer it on on a burnt offering. And who came through the door? His daughter. His daughter. That was an evil covenant. So it depends on the heart. It's not the vow making or not that's the problem. It's the attitude of the heart. Are you making your commitments in faith? There's so many people who say they believe I'm committing my life to you, Christ. I give you everything. And they're playing games with themselves. They're playing games with their eternity. That's scary, isn't it? Leaders who are fakers, people who are leading people astray, faking follow through where it's all just a big game. And what the rabbi would say to do to fix that is just force some follow through. Just follow through. Just get it done. And this is as far as religion can take you. Moralism, moral obedience. You said you're going to do it, just do it. It's like what any coach says. You said you're going to be at practice, be at practice. You're going to be there, do it. You have homework, get it done. If you parent just like that, or you pastor just like that, it will actually, instead of softening hearts, what will it do? It will harden hearts. Instead of drawing people to God, it pushes people away. Jesus is saying, no, go to the heart. Go to the, you have to strip off superficial commitment. Strip away superficial religion from your life 
and truly follow Jesus, strip away false accountabilities, false alibis, lying, swearing at things, swearing for things that you never intend to keep. I was thinking of Peter's commitment to Christ where Christ is saying, I'm going to die. And Jesus and Peter says to Jesus, oh, I'll die with you. I'll go with you. And then he's denying Christ, what, three times. And the, you know, the, the cock crows and Peter's exposed on the beach and Jesus is confronting him and he's repenting and making it right before the Lord, dealing with the heart. That's where there's true commitment and true follow through that's based on the power of Christ and integrity. So what's happening here? Again, back to verse 34. I say to you, don't take an oath at all by heaven. Why, why can't you take an oath by heaven? For if you're doing it superficially, for it is the throne of God. You say that you're going all the way to heaven with your commitment, but God's accountability is there. His ruling presence is there to call your bluff. That's his corrective. Or by earth. You say, I, I'm going I'm to make a commitment by everything around us, but earth is God's footstool. Verse 35, meaning God is here too. You can't run from his accountability by doing that either. And then you say, I want to sound sanctified. I'm going to make a commitment by Jerusalem where Jesus lives, where God lives. As if you're not running from God, but you're actually using God for cover because this will backfire because it's also the city of God. It's where God actually is present. There's no escaping God's accountability. And then you bring it down to verse 36 and do not take an oath by your head. Why? You say, I'm going to even put my own life on the line. That's not good because it's undermining God's sovereignty. It says, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So I'm going to put myself on the line. Oh, yeah, that means nothing because God is in meticulous sovereign control even over your hair follicles. Whether a hair is going to be white or black, God is involved in all of those details. So how do you make commitments to the Lord? Well, first of all, you got to understand God is, he's watching every area of your life. Anything that you would do all the way up in space on earth in a religious setting or in terms of what you would do down to your hair follicles, God's involved in all of that. You can't run from any of that accountability. So to strip away superficial religion is to acknowledge that God is present. God is the witness of your life. That's why lie detectors are, are, you know, a lot of them ask yes and no questions, right? Just true or false. You can't subdivide the truth. You just have to be real before God. William Barclay said it this way, said, here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments, in some of which God is involved in, and others which he is not involved, a language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard, factory, or office. Jesus, he offered this same rebuke in Matthew 23, verse 16. He said, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. This is, he's speaking as if, um, as if, for the Pharisees here. He's being sarcastic. A a Pharisee would say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Jesus says, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple which has made the gold sacred? Verse 18. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. 
But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. And Jesus says, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. In other words, God is everywhere. He's even in the details of temple worship. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. I used to think that the biggest scandal that I, in my lifetime, and I, it really was up to a point, was the Bill Clinton presidency scandal, right? If I'm bringing up the right, then I'll bring up the left. I'm, you know, give, you know treating, giving equal treatment here. But you remember the, the quip, the quotable quip where he says, it depends on what your definition of is is. Remember that? That's scandalous, scandalous. But we're used to that now. We're used to this level of duplicity, this cheapening language. But we as Christians need to not slice and dice to try to get out of speaking the truth with God speak. Helmut Thicke, the uh, religious um, theologian or the theologian, German theologian, he said this. When we're using God talk, what we're actually saying is we are expecting people to think we're going to lie. They're counting on us lying. So we have to use the big guns of these God words to kind of pad our oath. Well, what do we do? We strip away false securities. And then secondly, to tap into the power of integrity, you have to anchor yourself in the only true security. And this is verse 37. Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The solution for having true integrity boils down to one thing. It's relying on Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He's our example, but he's also the power source of our integrity. He's the one who sees into our hearts and knows truly if we are saying, yes, I will do it or no, I am not going to do it. Both are acceptable answers unless they become half-hearted commitments. We have to be a whole number, a full yes or a full no, not a fraction of yes or a fraction of no. How does this look? What does this look like? This is Paul's testimony. I love his, his sort of explanation of this in his own life in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, he said this to the church at Corinth. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and, you, and have you send me on my way to Judea. So something had interrupted Paul's trip and, and he was being accused of saying one thing and doing another. Like, oh, well, why didn't you come? It's like, you know, visiting family from far away. Why, you know, why did you come for this time as opposed to that? You know, it's that. But, uh, but this is a far deeper, on a far deeper indicting scale where someone's integrity is being undermined. This is what Paul says. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now, who is, he, who is Paul relying on for integrity there? He says, as surely as God is faithful. He's pointing at God word. He's saying God is the reason that my yes is yes and my no is no. 
He says, verse 19, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him, it is always yes for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying both Jesus' power, his example, his faithfulness in my life is why I have integrity. You can have integrity. You won't be perfect, but you can have integrity, solid integrity to the degree that you are committed to Christ, not trying to power through yes and no dimensions through the flesh, through religion through false, weird promises that we're trying to fake our way through. We trust in Christ alone, in his power alone, in his strength alone to stand out distinct in a corrosive world, a lying world. James 5 says the same thing. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by, by another oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. James 1 talks about not being double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The witness of Christ or, or Christian influence comes down to your integrity. You say, I don't know how to witness. I don't know how to break into a conversation and talk about Jesus with people. Guess what? Have integrity. Have integrity. If you have integrity, especially as our world gets more and more flaky, People will ask you, what is going on? Why are you rock solid? Why are you choosing to do, to do the right thing? Just live for Christ in his power, but don't trust superficial means to get there. Trust Christ. We are called as Christians to speak the truth in love. We're called to honor the God who is the same God of Numbers twenty three nineteen. He's not a man that he should lie. God does not lie. Titus 1.1 says that God cannot lie. He never lies. Titus 1 and 1, um, chapter 1 and verse 2 as well. Well, listen, there is a preacher and a writer of old named George MacDonald who wrote fictional books and he wrote theological works. And he was writing to his son. It was in 1878 to his son. And he made an admission to his son that I think is powerful. Shows a person who's pursuing integrity. He says, George MacDonald says, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many lies, petty lies. Things that mean one thing to myself, though another to other people. But I do not think lightly of it. Where I am moved often wrong is in tacitly pretending to hear things that I do, which I do not especially jokes and good stories, the point of which I always miss. That's like me, by the way, missing the joke. He says, but seeing everyone laugh, I laugh too for the sake of not looking like a fool. My respect for the world's opinion is my greatest stumbling block, I fear. People-pleasing. When do we break an oath, break a commitment, fake it, laugh along, Act in a duplicitous manner. Mean one thing, say one thing and mean another. A lot of times it's peer pressure and people pleasing, worried about what people think. So we'll swear by anything instead of the accountability of God that sees right into our hearts. He is our witness. He's not only our witness and our accountability, he's the power of integrity in our lives. 
gives us source of strength and power to say, I can do the right thing and live the right way by him. It's built on being whole, making confessions in view of Christ. Like Christ is perfect, not us. But where does this leave us in view of heaven and our own souls? Because we are not always promise keepers, but God is always a promise keeper. Listen to this. God cannot and will not break his oath to keep you secure all the way to heaven. His commitment to save you, his oath to save you is unbreakable. His oath is based on himself, not on our obedience or disobedience. And so we shouldn't deny his oath in the way that we speak about Christ or salvation or the way that we live. 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard me until the day um, of, that he's entrusted to me. 2 Timothy 2.11-13, listen to this. It's a trustworthy statement. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will, he will also reign, we will also reign with him. So if we're in Christ, we're going to be saved. If we persevere, we're going to be saved. If we never believed in the first place, it says if we deny him, he'll also deny us. But listen to this. If we are faithless, I love this, he remains faithful. Isn't that amazing? And why? Because he cannot deny himself. Isn't that incredible? Why do you keep oaths to people? Because God is keeping his oath to us, irrespective of our faithfulness. He will always be the ultimate promise keeper. He will. Jude 1, 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The world is going to increasingly be given to compromise. And as it compromises, just watch. It'll give us the greatest opportunity we ever we could ever imagine to stand like Daniel, like Joseph, like Abigail. Think of these people. People who stood for Christ, like Ruth, like Esther. And even those whom we loved that we saw that stumbled, Moses, Abraham. I mean, these are our founding you know, fathers of the faith. These are our examples. These are models of men and women to us to follow their godliness. And it wasn't based on superficial follow-through. It was based on integrity that's born out of a Christ-honoring, empowered trust and obedience from the heart.